I think even the bad honey is good honey. It just has an overpowering <laughs> aroma. But after a day of it, you, it's being locked in a, an elevator with someone with perfume, which is far too overpowering. Welcome to Notes from the Beard. You're listening to Episode 9, Extracting. One reason I feel so drawn to beekeeping is because it offers incredible experiences for the senses. Honey season, in particular, is about knockout aromas and delicate flavors dominated by sweetness. Listen to today's episode for a taste of what extracting is like for the small-scale beekeeper still using heated, handheld tools to release honey from the comb. My name is Laura Tyler. I'm your producer and host. This is Episode 9, Extracting, written by Colorado beekeeper Tom Theobald in 1990 and read by Tom this July. Stay tuned through the end to hear Tom and I chat about using old tools that belonged to people you know. It's rush hour in the country. As I travel down the back roads on these bright September days, a dormant armada of farm equipment has emerged. A few pieces of the fleet are shiny new but most show the effects of hard use in dust, mud, dirt, sun, and rain. The fields are alive with machines, most of them very expensive, designed to cut, chop, sift, bale, dig, sort, blow, or haul. And from the east coast to the central valley of California, from the Gulf Plain to the northern prairie, In the high valleys of Idaho or Montana and the Corn Belt of the Midwest, the scene is much the same. It's harvest time. Beekeepers refer to the harvest as extracting, after the machine which spins the honey from the comb, an extractor. Bringing in the honey is referred to as pulling honey. And this is what I am doing as I travel the back roads and watch the harvest scene unfold, going to my various bee yards pulling honey. For most of us, the extracting starts sometime in August. My harvest will be completed by the end of September, but some of the larger operators may run honey well into November. For larger beekeeping operations, a special building called a honey house is set aside to handle the extracting. In function, a honey house is much like a sugar shack in the maple sugar industry. For most of the year, it sits silently with equipment stored away and covered. But as fall approaches, like some great metamorphosing insect, the honey house begins to stir once more. Equipment is uncovered, Cleaned and connected, and on the first day of the run, it springs to life with the whirring and clanking of machinery as the aroma of new honey fills the air. When the bees have completed the conversion of raw nectar to honey, called elaboration, they fill each cell to the rim and close it off with a wax cap. 
The honeycomb consists, in effect, of row upon row of little beeswax jars, cells, which hold and protect their body for future use. For the bees, it is a simple matter to chew off these caps when they need some honey. But for the beekeeper, it is a little greater challenge. If I had to pick the caps off of millions of cells, I never would finish the harvest. Those caps have to be removed before the honey can be extracted from the comb, and long ago beekeepers devised a simple solution to this dilemma. In a standard Langstroth hive body or honey super, 10 frames of comb will give the proper bee space between each frame. What we do in the honey supers is cheat a little on the bee space, and therein lies the key to the harvest. Instead of 10 frames, a honey super contains only 9. This leaves a space between the combs greater than that 3 eighths of an inch, not enough that the bees will build a comb of their own in the void, but larger than they are comfortable with. They correct this by drawing out the cells of adjacent combs until 3 eighths of an inch remains between. And because of this, the comb then protrudes beyond the plane of the wooden frame. In the honey house, the frames are removed from the supers one by one and passed over an oscillating knife heated by steam. The hot knife cuts the caps from the comb so the honey can be removed. These cappings contain a considerable amount of perfectly good honey, and from the knife, the cappings fall directly into the revolving inner basket of a machine called a spinner. The spinner is like a washing machine with nothing but a spin cycle, and it spins the honey from the cappings. Uncapping continues until 21 frames are accumulated in a drip tank. This represents a full load for the extractor, and as the extractor spins the load dry, I uncap another 21 frames. The output of the extractor and the spinner passes through a filter before being pumped up to pass through a second, finer filter and into a storage tank. The tank will hold about 700 pounds, a normal daily run for my operation. In theory, at least, the harvest should be a satisfying and rewarding culmination of the effort for a year. For the most part, it is, but I've yet to meet a beekeeper who hasn't entertained the fantasy of just doing the beekeeping and letting someone else handle the harvest. Yet we all recognize that care in the extracting has a strong influence on the quality of the final product. I doubt that many of us would entrust it to someone else, even if we could. I guess we're all just beginning to burn out by the end of a long season and resist that last big push of the harvest. It gives me a special sense of kinship with beekeepers who came long before me, knowing that at this time of year, they were doing just what I am, traveling the back roads, gathering their crop, 
as they watch their neighbors bringing in theirs, sweating in the honey house, cussing bulky equipment, running liquid gold. Tom, let's talk about the smell of uh, (laughs) the honey house. Boy, I was reminded of that not two hours ago when I found out that there's a bear being seen around the honey house. (laughs) The bears are attracted to the aromas of fall. We've never had to worry about that until the last few years as bears have moved down out of the mountains onto the plains. So that uh, the aroma is, is very key, not only to the people, but to the critters. What is that aroma? Boy, it's a little bit of everything. It's, uh, honey has its own individual fragrance. But it's a reflection of the floral spectrum from which that honey was derived. And <laughs> I've had honeys that overwhelm me during the course of a day of extracting. And I find myself thinking, nobody's going to buy this stuff. It's just too overpowering. And by the final extraction, I'll take some in to one of the local cafes and pass it around for an assessment and everybody loves it for me the honey smell it's um the smell of the honey the wax and then sometimes my beekeeping gloves are part of it and there's propolis and smoke as well Uh i'll take a taste of the honey periodically just to see what it's like And because of the size of my operation, I'll have a string of supers that will reflect a certain period in the summer when a certain plant community predominated. And I'll have a whole spectrum of flavors. One of my favorites is peach flavor. Certainly not from peaches because there aren't enough peaches to do that, but some family of flowers has given it that flavor. My very favorite is the flavor of butterscotch, which comes from down by El Dorado Springs, and I think it comes from honeydew from Ponderosa Pines. The aphids convert the nectar to honeydew. The bees collect the honeydew. They convert it to honey, and that butterscotch flavor persists. So during the course of a season of extracting, I may have seven or eight different flavors that are reflected by different periods of time. It's a it's a marvel that's denied a hobby beekeeper who may only have one or two colonies of bees, and you don't get that reflection of the spectrum of flavors that come in during the course of the season. So another thing that You said that I felt a strong connection with was this uh, special sense of kinship with beekeepers who came long before, knowing that at this time of year they're doing the same thing. Do you you want to say anything more about that? 
for beekeepers of the size of my operation, which I, I've always referred to myself as a community beekeeper, my uh, connection to the bee yards and the colonies in those bee yards is very, uh, very close, very intimate. And because of the size of my operation, the equipment needed for the harvest has remained virtually unchanged. So, a hundred years ago, beekeepers would have been using extractors and heated knives to uh, uncap the comb. Uh, when I was doing this extracting, I, I talk about a oscillating knife heated with steam. Well, I had a small steam generator that dated to about 1920, if not before, used by a beekeeper who I knew, who started beekeeping in 1921. So I always have a sense when I use tools that belong to other people is that those tools have a spirit. Those tools have a story. They aren't just tools. They pass through the hands of people who perhaps I once knew who are now gone. And uh, I feel a kinship by way of the tools that I use. Thank you for listening to Notes from the Bee Yard, a podcast about the joys and disappointments of beekeeping. We publish new episodes on Fridays at noon. Until next time, hop on over to notesfromthebr.buzz to subscribe and join our new Facebook group, 